Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, from the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C., the first time this event has gathered in two years. Our coverage here is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine. Fink Contieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. But before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology. Later in the program, our roundtable with key takeaways from day three of this show. But first, we hear from two senior industry leaders. John Rambo from Lockheed Martin will be joining us. But, but first, my conversation with Wes Kramer, president of Raytheon Missiles and Defense. Wes, thanks so very much for joining us. Vago, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Pleasure having you on. First, I should uh, congratulate you. A great uh, $2 billion win uh, in the United States Air Force's long-range standoff uh, weapon award, obviously, for a a new generation of advanced uh, cruise missiles, uh, nuclear-tipped cruise missiles. But your Navy, uh, aside from the fact of being sort of on the defensive end of things from high-end radars to air defense, a critical United States Navy supplier, uh, obviously the standard missile family is uh, critical for fleet air and missile defense. And obviously the advanced uh, missile defense radar, the AMDR, is is critical to the future of the Navy, which you've integrated with uh, the Aegis uh, combat system. Major exercise with the United States Navy. Uh, I know that a lot of it is, is classified in terms of the air and missile defense elements of it. But what is it you can tell us about what you guys accomplished in the Pacific uh, recently? Well, the most recent flight test conducted, FTM-33, is what you're uh, referring to. And as you know, the SM-6 has basically a a triple mission capability, right? So it's an anti-aircraft cruise missile weapon. It has the ability to go surface to surface against ships. And then, of course, it has a a shorter range, um, you know, terminal ballistic missile defense capability. And that's what this test was all about, was looking at that short range anti-ballistic missile uh, capability. And for the first time, we uh, we salvoed two missiles against two targets, so a total of four missiles in the air. And I think that was really the big aspect of this. And clearly the Missile Defense Agency, the Navy, and uh, Raytheon are working through all of the data on that, so can't go into many of the results of that, but it was a very complex test. And can you tell us at this point whether the test was uh, successful? Um, Certainly the test was successful in meeting its test objectives. I know I can't go into the actual results of it. Uh, un- understood. Um, let's uh, take uh, go to uh, digital design. Obviously, this new weapon, uh, and indeed, right across industry, we're seeing this, but this transformation toward digital design was championed uh, by uh, your former C- uh, CEO and, uh, and friend, Bill Swanson, uh, who made clear that Raytheon would, instead of putting a slide deck on a table, put a missile on the table uh, for an anticipated need and get into those more rapid cycle times. That's yielded a series of very important strategic wins, whether it was for the Advanced Electronic Warfare uh, System, AMDR was was another uh, success among, among others. Talk to us about how digital design is transforming how it is you guys do business. 
it's really an incredible journey that we've been on. And as you mentioned, a lot of this dates back many years. And at that time, I think that Bill Swanson was talking about how do we get to, you know, a single manufacturing system, a single accounting system, many of the things like that. But it also led us down the path of how do we increase the fidelity of our modeling and simulation capability. And then what's really happened over the last, I'll say, couple of years is the embracing of digital thread and digital design by our customers in the Pentagon. And we're really um, on the leading edge of that, trying to drive that. And as you mentioned, I think it's been key in many of our recent wins is that ability to quickly put hardware on the table and to be able to demonstrate that, to have a digital model of the capability. And it's not just drawings and stuff, it's to be able to tie to the performance models, to be able to tie to the cost models. It's connecting all of those things together and then reaching into our supply base with that. And that's really the power of digital design and digital thread. How do we need to change how we think about design, development, and certification in that case, right? Because you are running these missiles through uh, thousands, if not millions of hours of simulated flight testing, right? You have greater fidelity, you can make engineering refinements, and yet the system, the acquisition, development, and test system is very much predicated in, in a much older approach to how you do things. How, would it, how, how should we be thinking about how this advance actually changes and improves how we do the bigger job? I think the biggest opportunity here is, as you mentioned, it's around the test aspect of that. You know, the time that it takes to test and the amount of cost that it takes to test uh, weapon systems is an incredible part of both the schedule and the budget. And I think that digital technologies offers us that ability to streamline that. And it's not to say that we don't do any testing it's that we can streamline and do more anchoring of that. So for example, you mentioned the long range standoff weapon. We actually fly that in a virtual environment 6 million miles every night against an incredibly complex set of threats. And to be able to take that type of a capability, there's many things that we can now do in the digital world that are next to impossible to simulate in the real world. And especially when we look at the future, and we postulate what that future threat environment could be. It's very hard to represent that in the physical world. It's much easier to do that in the digital. And so I think the opportunity here is to do more of the testing digitally and then limit the number of actual flight tests and use that to really anchor and validate your digital model. Um, bring us up to speed. Navy League is uh, always an opportunity for um, uh, leading uh, companies and much smaller ones also to highlight uh, uh, their key products. What are the key initiatives? Uh, bring us up to speed on, on what your priority efforts at Navy League are going to be and where they stand. Well, one of the things that I've been most excited about is this merger that we went through last year, and it also allowed us to do some consolidation of what was the legacy Raytheon businesses. And so, as you mentioned, I lead Raytheon Missiles and Defense, and we brought together the radar parts with the missile parts so that we now can address that entire kill chain. And I think especially from the Navy perspective and what we'll be highlighting here and what we are highlighting here at Navy League is that ability to do the end-to-end -end kill chain, whether it's the uh, AMDR or the uh, SPY-6 coupled with the SM-6, the advancements that we're making to SM-3, um, to SM-2, 
or to ESSM, all of those missiles are going through transformations um, to better be able to tie them in with radars. And SPY-6 itself is also a radar that is integrated across many of the new platforms in the Navy, and will have that ability to work together in a collaborative environment towards the Navy's focus of distributed maritime operations. We've got a new administration that's getting in the saddle uh, and and uh, changing investment patterns to focus on uh, the threats from China and Russia. The administration had asked for $715 billion. Uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee has added another $25 billion to that. But there is still a sense that important trade-offs will have to be made, uh, certainly the balance uh, between legacy and future platforms. And we heard from the vice chairman, John Hyten, that, that our war planning and assumptions may not be as uh, as as um, successful against a potential Chinese adversary as, as we had hoped. So we have to change how we do business. From your standpoint, what's the future? Uh, where, where are the future opportunities going to be? Uh, where are you going to be focusing resources and what do you think the outlook looks like? I think the outlook is uh, exactly as you stated here. The focus is more towards the uh, the high end fight, um, the ability to counter China, and so that's driving us to invest in you know more advanced uh, weapons systems. And we've seen this trend coming for a while, and our investments over the last several years have been focused in this area. I think that the president's budget was very much aligned to that. If you look at it. Um, there was a significant investment in modernization and in the high-end capabilities. Now, Congress is trying to balance that with some of the, I'll say, legacy platforms, and I think that's leading to some of the ads. So it will be interesting to watch as we go through this process here in the fall as to where the budget actually lands. You know, the, the one other thing that's made it a bit challenging for industry is this defense budget did not include a FIDEP. It was only FY22. And we often use looking at that FIDEP um, to help guide our investments of where the department is signaling that they're going longer term. And so clearly, we're also going to be anxious awaiting for the 23 budget that will hopefully be released on time next February and will include a FIDEP so we can get some of that long term direction there because that does help guide the investments of industry. And uh, we just have a couple of seconds left. But if you were looking at segments, what are the areas where where you think uh, over time are going to be uh, the winning uh, segments, whether it's in the electromagnetic spectrum, whether it's in uh, kinetic missile defense, passive cyber? Where do you think the, the growth areas are going to be over time and where are you guys starting to place your bets? Well, certainly there's several growth areas. Uh, hypersonics is one that we're very focused on and, you know, even beyond hypersonics to uh, speed of light type weapons. So whether that's high energy lasers or high powered microwaves, clearly the more and more is moving to cyberspace and outer space. So again, big areas of focus. And I, I think those are the main ones that everybody's looking at. Wes, Always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so very much, sir. Uh, and look forward to having you back on again for a, a deeper dive uh, conversation because there is a lot in your portfolio we'd like to discuss. Great day to you also. And now my conversation with John Rambo, the vice president and general manager of the integrated warfare systems and sensors business at Lockheed Martin. And joining us now is John Rambo, the vice president and general manager of Lockheed Martin's integrated warfare systems and sensor unit. John uh, great to have you back on the program. 
Thank you very much, Vago. It's great to be here. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. You and I had an opportunity soon after you uh, uh, joined the unit uh, at Surface Navy Association. It was a good conversation, Navy League this year uh, in person, uh, which uh, is uh, great. Uh, I want to start with the littoral combat ship. Uh, this program has been ongoing for 15 years, uh, but we've had challenges on mission modules. There have been some production uh, issues as well with uh, rank uh, gearboxes uh, that go uh, on the Freedom class ships. The Navy uh, is looking this year to retire uh, freedom and independence and then also retire another four ships. We'll see whether Congress agrees uh, to that. Everybody is working to try to make this a success. Your partner, Fink Contieri Marinette Marine, uh, is, is building the ships in Marinette, Wisconsin. Uh, obviously, they're a naval coverage uh, sponsor uh, as well. Walk us through what's happening from a Lockheed Martin perspective to get this program right. Because as we heard from Vice Admiral Murs, uh, commander of the 7th Fleet, folks are really beginning to understand that these are really value-add ships out there in the fleet. Yeah, th thanks a lot, Vago, and I, I'd be happy to talk about that. Lockheed Martin continues to be tremendously committed to the success of the LCS program and to the partnership with the Navy. And you know, certainly we are well aware of the uh, the concerns with the with the the gear, uh, the combining gear challenge. And you know, we've worked closely with the Navy to identify some design changes with the, with the supplier rank. And we've gone through extensive factory testing of a new design, which the Navy's reviewed and, and is supportive of. And we're now in the process of modifying uh, LCS 21, which will be the first of, of the Freedom class to receive the, the new combining gear. So we'll get through those modifications in the month of August, and, and she'll start sea trials in the September timeframe. And in parallel with that, we're working through with the Navy the path to, uh, to, to retrofit uh, other Freedom class uh, variant ships. And you know we've we've you know continued to work with the Navy also on a thought process around lethality and survivability upgrades that could continue to make the, the platform more effective. You know we we've seen recent successes uh, in Japan with the Indy variant, South America with the Freedom variant. So we do believe LCS continues to be an effective part of of the Navy's fleet, and we certainly would would like to continue to see them be. Uh, you know, relevant and uh, capable part of the, the Navy's force going forward. Uh, there have been some questions asked about the, you know, whether this will impact the, the, the MMSC deliveries for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and the answer is no. Uh, those ships will be fitted with the new design during the, uh, the standard production process, so there won't be a need to go back and retrofit anything uh, for, for those hulls. So, you know, we continue to be pleased that the, the LCS has matured over its life, you know, I think as we go forward, ships that we build in the future from the MSC design configuration will benefit from, from the 600,000 plus nautical miles that are now under the keel and the, and the design continues to mature. And we're now actually offering the, the third generation of the MSC design for the Hellenic Navy as part of their Hellenic Navy modernization program. We're going through that competition now. And, and talk to us a little bit about the capability that that ship is going to have and whether or not. Uh, Storylines like this, for example, the retirement of six ships by the United States Navy before we've really even hit our stride on this uh, program uh, and some of the other challenges are, are going to hurt your prospects uh, in what is uh, an important market as you guys try to um, get more of these ships into the hands of more customers around the world. Yeah, well, well you know, certainly, Vago, that's something we have to 
you know, address, but there, you know, as we know, there are many reasons the Navy might choose to want to decommission a ship, you know, there's budgetary reasons. Otherwise, I, I can't really speak for the U.S. Navy on what the, the, the rationale is there. But I can tell you, we continue to believe that this is an incredibly capable and, and versatile hull design that, you know, as I said, where we are in, with, the, with the Hellenic Navy offering, we're now two generations removed from the original LCS design, and we've factored in all the learning from those 600,000 miles that are under the keel. So while a number of other competitors are offering effectively a paper ship in that competition, one that hasn't really been fielded yet, we've got one that is proven and has continued to receive the benefit of the, you know, all the miles that the U.S. Navy has put on the platform. You asked a little bit about the capabilities. You know, what we've done is we've taken the, um, you know, the MMSC hull design and we've tailored that a little bit for the Hellenic Navy's requirements. We've also brought the pedigree of the Aegis combat system. So we're, we're you know, going to be fitting up those frigates with the Combats 21 system, which is pulled from the Aegis common source library. So you'll have, you know, the vertical launch system, the same, you know, command and control capability, same display systems, you know, access to many of the same systems that you find uh, across the U.S. Navy's fleet. We've uh, tailored the design for the Hellenic Navy, again, around some of their unique requirements. So um, eight NSM over the horizon missiles. We're going to be installing a 76 millimeter Stralis gun, which is a departure from prior configurations. We'll have, uh, we're going to be upgrading the ship to have 11 VLS cells with a diverse loadout. So uh, really some, some interesting differences, I think, that the Hellenic Navy has, has looked for here that we're going to be providing. And also, you know, recognizing that we're going to be upgrading as part of this program four of their existing MECO class ships. And we'll put the same combat system on those ships so that all of their fleet will be interoperable, not just amongst themselves, but also with the U.S. Navy fleet operating in the in the Mediterranean. And of course, with their MH-60 Romeo helicopters also, that'll provide them a really robust and integrated ASW capability. So really, I think uh, a very positive offering and all of that done through the very transparent U.S. Navy foreign military sales process, which I don't think any of the other competitors are going to be able to bring to the table. So it's a, it's an offer that's backed by the, the U.S. government. It comes with a full package of uh, training and support as part of the FMS case. And we believe that the Hellenic Navy will make a final decision on which way they're going to go sometime before the end of this calendar year. Um, let me take you uh, to the question of the broader portfolio. You guys have everything from the Aegis combat system that is still heart of the U.S. Navy's warfighting capability. Congratulations on the big uh, missile uh, test, um, uh, recent missile test that was a, an enormous uh, success working with the Navy as well as your partners at Raytheon. Uh, talk to us a little bit across the, the piece, John, right? You guys have Aegis, you have SPY-7, uh, you're working the Helios system, obviously very strong, right? In each one of these cases, the more capability you demonstrate, the more the Navy wants. Bring us up to speed on where we stand on each of these programs. Sure. Well, you know, Aegis continues to be a very successful franchise for us. You know, we're focused right now on continuing to provide uh, capability for ballistic missile defense through Baseline 9. Obviously, a lot of work, as you mentioned, in partnership with Raytheon to conclude our our work in our initial fielding of baseline 10, which will integrate to the SPY-6 radar. And, you know, of course, we're also focused on uh, other applications for the Aegis capability. You know, we're, we're certainly looking at uh, the defensive bomb. You know, we know there are many stakeholders out there who are 
interested in, in what a defensive Guam solution will look like. And, and certainly we believe that a, a multi-mission Aegis capability paired with SPY-7 is, is going to be a part of, or should be a part of, uh, the ultimate solution that is, uh, that's fielded there for, for defensive Guam to, to meet the, the emerging threats that we're seeing in that region. SPY-7 has been a very successful product line for us. As you're aware, we have the long-range discrimination radar that we've built with uh, the Missile Defense Agency. That'll be going live and, and, and being accepted by the MDA before the end of this calendar year. And of course, the building blocks of LRDR are SPY-7. So we've, we've been successful competitively on the international stage, securing SPY-7 orders with the Canadian Surface Combatant Program in Canada, F-110 program in Spain, and most recently with the decision by Japan to move from Aegis Ashore to a sea-based ballistic missile defense capability, we'll be seeing SPY-7 going to sea in Japan as well. So we're really excited about how that, uh, how that product line has come along. And then I guess the last thing I'd, I'd touch on a little bit is, you know, in terms of the more emerging technologies, a lot of investment having been made by our company in directed energy. And the, one of the programs we're most proud of is the, the delivery of the Helios uh, laser weapon system to the Navy for testing earlier this year. So we do have that system out at Wallops Island. It's a 60 kilowatt uh, high energy laser that's, that's fully integrated into the ship systems of a DDG. So think about the challenges associated with power and cooling and, and linking that, that weapon system into the, uh, to the combat system on the ship. All of those are going to be tackled as part of the uh, delivery and integration of, of Helios. So, you know, a lot of questions have been asked about the, the power levels, and certainly we're working closely with the U.S. Army, for example, on scaling up to a 300 kilowatt laser system and you know some customers are looking to go beyond that and i think it's important to continue to keep some of the r d dollars in that area but i don't think we should lose sight of the tactical relevance of a system in the 60 to 120 kilowatt range that helios is capable of and we've done some some detailed modeling here at lockheed martin and uh, we we are pretty confident that even at the current power range of 60 kilowatts, Helios can be effective as part of um, an integrated um, counter uh, ASCM capability, which we know is something the Navy is very, very focused on. How do you pair that directed energy system with the kinetic capabilities on the ship to, to better defend against those anti-ship cruise missiles? And, and we do believe that uh, the Helios can be effective in that regard. So we're, we're pretty excited about that and looking forward to seeing that, that, that system get fielded on the, uh, the U.S.'s Preble a little bit further down the road. And we've got about 30 uh, seconds left. Obviously, a new administration, $25 billion more dollars, uh, courtesy of the Senate Armed Services Committee. From your standpoint, what's the outlook? Where are the focus uh, elements, right? Because your job is as much about delivering on today's uh, capabilities as it is to prepare for tomorrow's challenges. Where do you see your customer going? Where are you putting the investment for the future? Well, you know, certainly the Navy is going to continue to invest in, in a more robust fleet and, and, the, and the ship count is going to continue to be a, a strong focus. And we'll be right there alongside them to support that with our combat systems and, uh, and radar capabilities. In addition to that, I think we're going to see investments in, you know, what Lockheed Martin refers to as 21st century warfare. You know, how do you start to bring capabilities together in a more connected fashion? And I think Project Overmatch is going to be an area where we're going to see continued investment and continued capability development 
that from uh, from an RDT&E perspective. Um, you know, certainly that mix of kinetic energy and directed energy, uh, you know, is going to be a continuing focus. I believe that you know the cost per kill, as the cost of those laser weapon systems comes comes down, is going to be I think attractive to the Navy. And we don't want to lose sight of you know hypersonic defense, unmanned capabilities. We're working now on the uh, the design for the LUSB, and, and certainly we think uh, unmanned over time. While it's going to be a little bit further out on the horizon, is something we're going to see the Navy continue to put some money into. So, we're just really excited to uh, to get a little bit more insight into CNO's Nav Plan 2021, where the Navy's headed. John, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program, and look forward to having a longer discussion one of these days soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, Vago. Great to be here with you. And joining us for our roundtable discussion on this, the third day of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show this year, uh, live and in person, are Brian McGrath, a retired United States Navy commander and strategist uh, who is with the Ferry Bridge uh, Group, uh, and our very own producer, Chris Cervello, who is also uh, one of the co-founders of the Provision Advisors uh, PR firm. Uh, guys, uh, thanks very much. And I should also say that uh, Cervello is teamed with Chris Cavus for uh, the Cavus Ship, uh, Ships podcast uh, every week to take a deep dive and clear through the fog uh, of naval uh, issues. Brian, uh, great to see you again uh, in person after a long uh, hiatus, uh, and you've been kind enough to join us on the program. Navy League, we're here. Uh, we've been hearing messages from the Navy leadership. You obviously help advise the Navy leadership a little bit on their messages and how to be thinking about some of these big issues. Uh, what did you hear? What are the key takeaways You know, after your three days here at this show? My key takeaways come from a, a variety of sources, come from the statements made by Navy leadership, come from the, the way those uh, statements fall on the audience and how they interpret them. Um, there is a good deal of anxiety in the air. There's a real serious sense of anxiety about, about budgets, about near-term threats, about budgets and near-term threats and how well they're matched. Um, so that, that, air of, that air of anxiety is playing in the background. The second thing, though, is there is a good deal of, of uh, a good, good many friends and comrades from the past here. It is so wonderful to be back with people again. Um, this show and this kind of thing is one of the few places where the uniforms and industry actually talk to each other like human beings and trade ideas and and give each other a, a sense of where they're going. Um, the Pentagon had an attack yesterday. It is, in fact, a, a very secure military base. It's difficult for industry to get access to uh, requirements officers and decision makers. This forum, um, because it was canceled last year, uh, is required, and it brought people together. And I, I just wish that COVID hadn't been still in the uh, in the air, so that more military folks would have been here for those conversations. Um, but one of the other concern points that I've picked up on the on the floor, and I want to go to Cervello here in a minute, is the sense that the Navy doesn't have as good of a beat on this situation, right? I mean, folks are looking at the 25 billion additional dollars this year. There's an additional DDG uh, that's going to be coming the Navy's way, and there's every expectation that the House uh, is going to go along with it and, and that the administration will go along with it. What's your sense on the questions you're hearing about the Navy not having its ducks lined up uh, at this key part that is contributing for many people to the anxiety? I mean, the thing that folks, you know, have been sort of echoing here is, you know, we're just not ready for prime time and we, we still don't have a beat on this. That's a, th th that is feeding the anxiety. There's no question about it. I, 
I try to give Navy leadership a little bit of slack on that regard because they don't submit a Navy budget. They submit a budget that is part of the Defense Department budget. And I think all things being equal, that if they had uh, uh, the ability to send over what they wanted, that other DDG would have been in the program. But it came over as part of a consolidated DOD budget. The Navy had to make really hard decisions. Um, I am very concerned about a, a, a say-do mismatch. I mean, this administration is leaning forward in the saddle uh, with China and great forward competition, and then they put forward a budget that I think is unserious. And the Navy's portion of that was also unserious. But it is only the Navy's portion of it. There are folks who would say that the Navy can control what it wants to spend money on. It has a tendency of giving up things it knows that Congress wants to put back in or may not even need, right? I mean, the administration is sort of trying to say, hey, let's use this as a transition year, even if we get more money, to align the force uh, for, for the future. This is where I want to bring uh, Cervello in. You know, Chris, I want to uh, go over to you. Uh, you were kind enough to join us on Monday with Chris Cavus. Uh, you guys uh, on the program are going to be talking about this in greater detail on Friday. What are some of the additional takeaways you guys uh, have, have had and you've had uh, in the two days since you joined us? So I heard a lot. Um a lot more about enablers um, than I've heard at any uh, of these conferences in recent years. And what I mean by that is there's there are companies now that are, you know, traditionally made X component and were known for X that are now um, beginning to talk more about the services that they provide. They're beginning to talk about how they're going to, my words, fit into this divest to invest, right? If you buy that divest to invest, there is a period of time where you're going to have to provide services and maintenance and upkeep of what we do have left until the new technology comes aboard. I heard a lot more about that from industry. This is a, um, it's a better focused industry and maybe it's that anxiety that Brian mentioned that has caused people to kind of seize on that. The CNO's comment from Monday continues to echo and bounce around. Um, my advice to the Navy and to the CNO, uh, nobody asked me, but if I was to give them advice, it would be pick up the phone next week and uh, call everybody and just kind of reinforce what he was after and reinforce those partnerships because there's a lot of people here that are, I think, disappointed, um, not at the admonishment because they get it, but at the fact that they're the headlights that he alluded to, the plan that he alluded to doesn't exist. And so he's got to get to that as soon as possible in order to make, um, in order to really capitalize on the momentum that you and Brian were just talking about. Um, and, and Brian, I want to come back to you on this. I mean, ultimately, one of the things that I've been getting is that the that now everybody is mad at the CNO. There are people in the Navy who are mad at the CNO. There are people in Congress who are mad at the CNO. Now industry is mad at the CNO. Um, you know, Brian, from your standpoint, what, is, what does the CNO have to do? I think the point he was trying to make is a, is a valid and legitimate one. I think what rubs industry a little bit is, hey, look, he hasn't really been engaging with us at this level and had this conversation with us before uh, dropping this hammer. From your standpoint, what, what, from a messaging standpoint, what has to happen next? Because the number one thing you focused on was the importance of partnership and for the Navy to work uh, together with industry to do this stuff. Yeah, I, um, I retired from the Navy in 2008, and I will tell you that uh, I have not seen things this sort of tense between the building and uh, in industry in that entire time. Um, I think the CNO uh, wanted to say what he said the other day. It wasn't spontaneous. Those, those rounds were chambered when he walked up there. So he had a, 
he was trying to get something across. I would love to have been part of the discussion before he came over where he decided he was going to say that because I'm having a, a little bit of a hard time understanding. Though he told the truth, he said important things. Um, the Navy lives in a glass house <laughs> and, um, and, and the Navy has made um, terrible decisions and mistakes over the years that have placed itself and industry in bad places. I talked earlier about how difficult it is to communicate with the Navy because of the security requirements at, at the Pentagon. Uh, phone lists for, N, for, for the, the OPNAV staff are for official use only. After 9-11, right? I mean, there used to be a Pentagon phone book that we reporters used to have and use all the time. Exactly. And, and so did industry to call people. The, the cup of coffee to talk about possibilities has disappeared. And that sort of thing greased the skids of a more efficient and effective relationship between the building and industry. And I, 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 we, we're, we're, in, we're in two separate worlds right now. And I think the CNO needs to, um, to think deeply about how things he says and the, uh, the training that they give their new requirements officers reinforces a sense that you're not going to spring a protest if you have a meeting with, you know, company X. It's okay to go outside the building to have a, a meeting uh, on, about these things. We have to raise a generation of people who understands the importance in a, in a free country, in a capitalist country, uh, the importance of a good relationship between an industrial base and the major customer. I think you do that, to, to piggyback on Brian's point, I think you do that by, one of the things that I really liked from the CNO's remarks was he talked about the complexity of the battle problems um, is increasing and the lar larger exercises. I hope that he either directly or through his syscoms and uh, um, you know war bosses, if you will, the you know the air bosses, slow bosses, sub boss, comes back to industry immediately following some of these larger uh, war games and talks to them, gives them the right level of feedback. To me, that would be a great way to me. Uh, in addition to kind of picking up the phone and doing a little bit of relationship building, that would be a more formal way of um, encouraging that that conversation, feeding back into it and starting to rebuild some of these uh, uh, teamwork exercises that I think Brian and I were used to, you know, growing up and seeing from the Pentagon. Um, Brian, I want to ask you, um, I, I can't, um, you know, end this without getting your take on the uh, littoral combat ship. Uh, six of the ships are out, so, you know, the, the, the force is getting haze gray underway. Bill Murs, who's uh, seventh fleet commander, coming back into the building now, um, has had great things to say about uh, the platform, and yet uh, the ships are being retired already, right? Independence was just last week, uh, the first uh, of uh, its class uh, of, of uh, the uh, wave-piercing trimaran design from Austell. Uh, there are six of those ships that are going to be retired, and there's a sense that even more of the ships uh, could be uh, retired, in, in which case folks will be asking, you know, Casey Moten was kind enough to join us, uh, the PEO for small uh, manned uh, as well as unmanned uh, surface combatants, and made the case, hey, look, you know, it's not his job to see what happens to the class, but valuable lessons will have been learned. From your standpoint, is, is, does it make any sense at all for the Navy to be retiring these ships? And, and is this the beginning of a full retirement, which is the scuttlebutt that's, that's going around, whether or not it you know, actually happens is being you know, deliberated, obviously. But what, what's your sense on where we are? I mean, are we shooting ourselves in the foot again? 
Um, yes, but I don't know that we have another choice. Um, the, the leadership of the Navy as responsible planners have to invest in the near term, the midterm, and the long term. And when they looked at the amount of money they have and the priorities that they have, and yes, the strategy that they are trying to address, um, they come up with cuts. They come up with things that have to go. Um, surface warfare, to my career-long disdain, has been that bill pair. <laughs> and they look at surface warfare, they look at surface warfare force structure, they look at war surface warfare training, they look at surface warfare maintenance and modernization, and it pays the bills so that things don't fall out of the sky and so that we don't have nuclear accidents on carriers and submarines. Those programs are more important. They get The pigs get a better place in the trough than surface warfare does and I think that is not wise when you are strategically saying we are emphasizing the competition because the competition phase is all about conventional deterrence and that's why we have powerful networked present ships conventional deterrence that point can't be, um, I think, foot stomped enough. I mean, you you guys have said, and smarter people than I have said, you get the Navy, you pay for. And right now, we're getting the Navy that we're willing to pay for. The Navy that we're willing to pay for, I, I think, is going to get smaller, um, which is going to make life tougher on those that are uh, on those ships, both in terms of maintaining and the operational tempo, and then their ability to take well thought out time to get better. Um, and so unless you're willing to pay for a different Navy, um, you kind of have to go along with the Navy that, that you have. And that goes for industry, that goes for the folks in the Navy, that, that goes for the Congress. This to me though is where there is an opportunity. And again, I don't mean to be a, a, a broken record. There's an opportunity for the Navy to do a better job of sounding thoughtful alarms, um, identifying a strategy, and then for those of us that come to these types of conferences to be um, informed, vocal advocates for the type of Navy we want. This is the type of work that Brian has been doing over the last you know, several years, uh, working very closely with the, the Navy League, and I'm hopeful that they're moving in that uh, right direction. I, mean, I, I should point out to our audience, right? I mean, 85% of the Navy's maintenance budget goes to the nuclear Navy, 15% goes to the surface force, uh, which we've seen time and again uh, is, is not a good in, investment. I mean, my, my concern with this is the Navy could be a lot more judicious about what it is it's spending money on, and some of these programs have failed to deliver the capabilities they were supposed to because of sort of mundane things like mission modules not being ready. We would have been able to get more out of the LCS if the modules had been there. P-8 is in the same uh, category. The Navy was racing because the P-3 fleet was dilapidated. Unfortunately, the multi-static package comes in late, and then all of a sudden the, the platform, a perfectly good platform, isn't achieving, you know, has spent a decade or more uh, in service without kind of the capabilities that, that the, the battle force needs. So, I mean, again, this is about trade-offs and choices. There is, a, there is a constant thing in Navy budgeting and budget planning, and that is when pressure is applied, financial pressures are applied, Navy planners always default to those things that are most crucial after the shooting starts, the war-winning force. And that it's just a it's a it's a logical. It's one of the reasons the submarine force it gets the 
the front street it, that it gets is because it, they are unprecedented killers after the shooting starts, and they have a big part of any war plan. The problem with that with, the, with that approach is it makes you potentially better at fighting a war that you are doing a poorer job of deterring. That is the self-fulfilling prophecy that I that that I I worry about. I, I I agree with you on that, but where I would push back is if the United States Navy and indeed the United States military wanted to deter in the way that it wants to, it has to grow much longer sticks. And if you're somebody who's sitting in Beijing and looking at what's in those tubes or what may not be in those tubes at all in in many cases because they're tagged out, then you're going, hmm, I have a 10-foot or a 12-foot stick, and this guy's coming into the... He grew his stick from 3 feet to 5 feet, but he's still 7 feet short. There are two things. I worked for a boss that said that the role of the Navy is to make adversaries like China say, not today, right? They would look out, they'd see our Navy either literally or figuratively, and then they'd say, not today. There is a balance between long sticks and having things on the horizon. And I just worry that as we dial down the um, the amount of things that are on the horizon, to Brian's point, the first part of that calculus of whether they go today or not becomes easier and easier, right? So then they, I don't want them to think about the long sticks. Uh, uh, again, to Brian's point, I want them to look out on the horizon and say, no, no way today because we're, we're here uh, and, and we're in places, you know, help our uh, partners and allies were there, um, you know, shoulder to shoulder with, with folks. Um, if it gets to the point where it's only about uh, the long sticks, boy, I, that's, a, that's a dangerous position to be in. Chris, thanks very much. Looking forward to the Cavus uh, uh, Shifts podcast on Friday where you guys are going to be taking a deep dive. Brian, terrific seeing you. Uh, you've been kind enough to join us on the program, and it's always better seeing you uh, in the skin. Uh, you're looking resplendent, I must say, for our audience, and, and you're rocking the pants. And for the audience at home listening, not getting to see, Vago Maradian is sporting a luscious mane of hair that I've never seen before. It, it's, uh, it's. I, I'm not used to it yet. I, I like it quite a bit, but it is a lot of hair. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever said that about what's on the top of my head, but I really appreciate the the, the visual on that, and also lovely watch uh, as well. Brian, thanks very much. You're thank very you. kind, Chris. Uh, thank you, and everybody, please tune in for the Camus Ships broadcast on Friday. Thanks again, guys. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.